Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. My name is Joanna Defoe, a research assistant at the Center, and you are listening to the second part of a podcast with Dr. Daniel Jurgen to discuss his recent book, The Quest, Energy, Security, and the Remaking of the Modern World. Dr. Jurgen has been described as one of the most influential authorities on energy, international politics, and economics. He received the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. He has received the United States Energy Award for Lifelong Achievements in Energy and the Promotion of International Understanding. Dr. Jurgen, welcome back. Thank you. In a recent article in the New York Times, Elizabeth Rosenthal wrote about life after oil and gas, and she asks the question, to what extent will we really need fossil fuels in the years to come? To what extent is it a choice? How would you respond to Rosenthal's quite open and broad question? Oh, that's a question, of course, many people uh, ask. I think that what the what has been learned by many people, including Silicon Valley, which invested in energy, is that the energy system doesn't change uh, that quickly because of its scale and its size. Things take longer. People are, you don't have early adapters like you do with uh, uh, mobile phones or uh, uh, other sort of internet type things because the question of reliability and scale is really important and the risks of something going wrong are really important. So this is a question that I addressed and I had to come to a conclusion in the quest about. Uh, And the conclusion I come to is that renewables will grow a lot, but so will conventional energy will grow a lot. And that growth in conventional energy will be driven by rising incomes in the emerging market countries. And so that in 2030, maybe a couple decades from now, uh, uh, world energy demand might be 40%, 35 40% higher than it is today. Renewables will have grown a lot, so will conventional energy. And so the mix, the share, will not look too different. It probably will still be 75% fossil fuels. The real changes will come in the 2030s and thereafter as we see the effects of the money and the efforts that's going into energy innovation today. And that's the, uh, the takeaway for me when I look at the range of stories that I explore uh, in the quest is that technologies will change and some of them will come as surprises and have big impacts, but they don't come overnight. And that applies whether you're talking about uh, shale gas or whether you're talking about wind and solar, they take decades to develop. How can we reconcile a future of relatively affordable oil and gas with the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions to address climate change? I think it's a really uh, tough question, and it really depends upon countries, emerging market countries. What do they want to trade off in terms of uh, economic growth? What do they want to trade off in terms of social stability? What do they want to trade off in terms of their political system? And so, uh, and they have take a very different view uh, than the developed countries on it. And so there is a kind of balancing between economic growth and jobs uh, and uh, climate objectives. And that's why technological innovation is such an important part of the answer. Is, is there a key to this optimal balance? Um, 
or is it just generally the the pursuit of ongoing innovation and I don't you know I think some people think things should move very fast and think it can move very fast uh, others say you know just looking at the scale of the system it it takes longer uh, you're talking about the kind of foundations of modern economies in the first part of the quest you describe in fascinating detail the political and geographic components of a new world of oil what is the new world of oil and how is it different from the old world well there are some big difference one is the reintegration of russia into the into the global system and that is a, a an ongoing uh, story and the whole collapse of the Soviet Union and how those different countries became part of the system. I think the other part of it is the, the rise of the emerging markets. China is the only country in the quest that gets two chapters of its own because I thought it's so important to understand the dynamics of energy in China and what it's all about because that's such a driver. And so I think the fact of what I call the globalization of demand uh, is a very important part of the story as to where the growth is. So those are some of the key elements of the new world of oil. Now, there's a whole new thing there that I write about when I talk about the unconventionals and what's happening with what's called tight oil in the United States. Uh, if you go back to 2008, it was kind of all over for the U.S. Oil imports were just going to go up and up. Uh, since 2008, U.S. oil production has increased by 40 percent. That increase is equivalent to Nigeria's entire oil production. So the development of these new technologies, once again, technology responding to price and need, uh, that may uh, continue to uh, reshape this uh, new world of oil. Another big focus in the quest is related to modern energy security. And you call for the expansion of energy security in response to changing infrastructure, information technology, and a world economy. What energy security threats are most important for policymakers and industry to be mindful of? And what opportunities exist for building resilience to these threats? Well, resilience, the, your word, use of the word resilience is really key to be able to respond. And you have the traditional threats that you know are kind of embodied now with the standoff with Iran over uh, its nuclear weapons program, and whether in some ways, once again, oil production from that region will be disrupted, the security of the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, uh, is, and, but I think that there are kind of three elements today that are new. One is physical security of assets. And uh, we saw the, uh, the jihadists seize uh, the gas processing facility in the Sahara Desert of Algeria uh, with the intention of doing really, I mean, they did horrible things, but doing much more horrible things. And I think that's a question. The second is what I call integrated energy shocks. We saw that with Hurricanes Katrina and Rita uh, in the United States, uh, and then we saw it with Superstorm Sandy. When everything goes down, your power lines are down, your fuel supplies are down, you can't get to uh, resources, and it just shows how dependent we are in a modern energy system and how interdependent because your emergency vehicles can't operate because they can't get uh, gasoline because there's no electricity at the gas station to work the pumps. And, uh, you know, we've had two examples now where parts of the U.S. have been immobilized. The third is a cyber threat. And uh, the uh, f uh, former defense secretary, Panetta, before he stepped down, talked, warned about the dangers of a cyber Pearl Harbor. And President Obama, in his last State of the Union address, talked about the number one cyber threat he cited was people disrupting the electric power grid. So I think that's a big new issue that uh, 
that the vulnerability is there and the kind of fear that something uh, uh, big could happen and and to how do you get the defenses for it so I think um, uh, the, the the combination of those are the kind of new energy security threats that we have to think about the security threats of the whole supply chain the entire infrastructure system when we talk about energy security it there's a tendency to sort of look at this as an emerging issue or an emergent issue uh, or very complicated and so I'm curious to know if you think it would even be possible to create a measurement of energy security that can be relatively compared amongst countries. And if it is possible, what factors would go into an energy security index? Well, people try and do that, and they look at it in terms, you know, they try and find a lot of different factors. But I think the situation of countries uh, is different. Uh, a country like Norway uh has a different position than a country like Italy. So uh, you can't sort of say, well, it's imports or you can't. Um, but I think, you know, there are lessons from this in terms of, uh, of being prepared and thinking, going back to your word of resilience and knowing how you do deal with a crisis. So you don't have to do as the U.S. did in Superstorm uh, Storm Sandy, reinvent the wheel again. I mean, as... Uh, somebody I know who was involved in dealing with that crisis said, we were lost in the fog of war. We just didn't have information. So how do you prepare for these things in advance and taking them seriously? And I think on the cyber threat, you need co cooperation between government and, uh, and the private sector because of the nature of the, of the networks. Dr. Jurgen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Dr. Jurgen's latest book is called The Quest, Energy, Security, and the Remaking of the Modern World. Thank you.